I'd like to welcome people from all over the world at, for this panel, and also our special guests who are world experts. My name is Jeffrey Smith, and I am the founding executive director of the Institute for Responsible Technology. And I'm also the director of the film that was released on Monday, Don't Let the Gene Out of the Bottle. And several of the panelists today appear in that film. <clears throat> The film sounds a global alarm on behalf of Protect Nature Now. <clears throat> Today is Earth Day. And typically on Earth Day, people review the problems that humans have created for the world and what we can do about it. And more often than not, those problems have resulted from new technologies. At the Institute for Responsible Technology, we monitor primarily genetic engineering and associated chemicals. And we have seen the development of new genetic engineering technologies, which we're calling GMO 2.0. And we believe that the threats from GMO 2.0 are unprecedented and among the most serious dangers that we have seen at any time in human history. Let me describe to you what I call the recipe for disaster related to GMOs. First of all, when you release a genetically modified organism into the environment, it can become a permanent part of the gene pool. Unlike chemical spills, which can dissipate and be cleaned up, a genetic engineering release can self-propagate and there's no way to clean it up or recall it. Second, the most common result of genetic engineering, including the new technologies, is surprise side effects. Now these two components, the irreversible nature and the surprise side effects, have gone on for decades already. But the third element relates in particular to gene editing. And that is that the technology is now so cheap and easy, you can become a genetic engineer with an online kit from Amazon. And for a few more dollars, you can end up creating a little lab and genetically engineering things like microbes on a daily basis. Mm. This is the recipe for disaster. The permanence, the prone to side effects, and now the easy access. But what makes it dangerous is the lack of regulation, where gene editing has been given a free pass, and we will hear about that from one of our panelists. Now, of all the things that you can genetically engineer, of all the kingdoms, of all the organisms, the kingdoms that are the most dangerous for human health and the environment are the microbials, the microbiome, collectively known as the microbiome bacteria, viruses, archaea, fungus. And the reason why is that the microbiome is a special ecosystem that supports life, human life, environmental life, in a special way. And we're going to hear about that. And the nature of the microbes are such that they interact, travel, mutate, swap genetic elements. So 
input anywhere <clears throat> can become an input everywhere. And you'll hear how the microbiome has evolved with humans and all ecosystems over billions of years, but the introduction of genetically engineered microbes adds elements which are by nature completely unpredictable and could promote disease, damage to ecosystems, and even ecosystem collapse. Hence the name of this program, Urgent, Safeguard the Planet Critical Microbiome from GMOs 2.0. Now, <clears throat> Protect Nature Now is a global campaign that seeks to protect the world from the dangers of genetically engineered microbes, including the special class of pathogens, which if they got released could cause pandemics. And so our global call is to prevent the genetic enhancement of potentially pandemic pathogens and the outdoor release of genetically engineered microbes. And we'll talk more about the nature of Protect Nature now and what you can do to become part of our efforts after we have a deeper understanding of the microbiome, the threats, and the solutions. So I'm excited to introduce our first speaker, Kiran Krishnan. Kiran Krishnan is a, was a university research microbiologist and has had many positions in the supplement industry and the nutrition industry. He's currently the chief scientific officer of Physicians Exclusive and Microbiome Labs. Kiran is conducting and has been conducting research on the microbiome and publishing it and is a pioneer at understanding the nature of the microbiome and also has been a chief educator, particularly among healthcare practitioners, who he speaks to about 50 different conferences per year and many, many more online. And Kieran will speak about the foundational role of the microbiome, introducing us to the unseen critters that actually give and support our life. Kieran? Jeffrey, thank you so much for having me. Thank you all for being here. Um, today as well. I think it's critical in order to understand the potential impact that genetically modified organisms can have. It's, it's absolutely critical to understand how organisms are structured within your system itself. So that's what I will be diving into. Let me share my screen. Okay, and I assume you can see it. Okay. Um, we'll talk uh, relatively quickly on the microbiome and its form and function in health and disease. But mo most um, urgently, what I'd like you all to understand is how intricate the relationship is between us and our microbiome. In fact, you know, it's almost wrong to separate the two. We are one and the same. Um, in really, in order to appreciate it, we have to rethink what a human is, right? We, we have this mechanical view of the human body. We've got an organ system connected by things like soft tissue and uh, vessels and nerves and so on. We, we're more like a mechanical machine up and down. We've got a brain that controls a lot of the central movement. You've got a gut that does a lot of the di digestion. But at the end of the day, what a human is, is really a holobiome. A human is a walking, talking rainforest. It's a collection of all of these different symbionts and biomes who come together and form this super organism. So we are a very complex ecosystem. And the vast majority of our function as a human comes from that ecosystem, 
right? So that part is really important to note because if we disrupt that ecosystem in an unintended way or uh, a way that could not be predicted, the effects could be catastrophic because we count on our ecosystem for basic form and function. So to give you a little background on the structure of the human microbiome, we've got upwards of a thousand different species, commensal organisms, symbionts, and so on. We've got things like viruses, archaea, bacteria, unicellular organisms. We've got a really, really big variety of microorganisms that live in and on us and all over our body. Incorporation of this diverse set of microbiome is a huge factor in evolution. Um, and it is speculated that our ancestral mammals um, in, in the early Jurassic period relied on their gut microbiome to support their mainly herbivore-like diet. So this incorporation of a large fermentive base in early mammals plays an important role in the ability to fashion a huge diversity of bio, bio, uh, bi uh, biological uh, molecules that are really important for form and function. And the ability to, to um, fashion and create those biological molecules are, are a significant driver of the evolution of humans throughout the ages. Uh, throughout mammalian evolution, carbohydrates became kind of a prominent energy source. The acquisition of gut bacteria from many different areas, um, from the environment, from other animals and so on, creating this fermentive platform um, became a really essential component to supplying us, the host, with these biomolecules. And then with, there's a constant shaping that goes on with the microbiome as well. And this is interactions between hosts. So your interactions with other people around you, um, the interactions that you might have with nature, with the, with the land, with animals, where you live, what are the, uh, the selective forces around you, all of these things drive an adaptation of your microbiome to help you adapt to the ecosystem that you are um, existing in. And the key here is that the microbiota and the host have co-evolved with each other, you know, but at different rates. So that's a, the, that's an interesting aspect, right? So imagine you've got this huge set of microbes that live in and on you, and they do all of these critical functions for you. And we've evolved with them over time, but we evolve at slightly different rates. The human system, the, the, the mechanical system that we know of, that evolves a little bit differently than the microbial system. The adult microbiota reveals kind of a significant inter-individual um, variation. So between each of us, we have very different species distribution within our microbiome, and we can be quite uh, diverse um, and, and different, even among uh, identical twins who have 100% same genetics, they can have very different microbiomes when it comes down to the species level. However, functional redundancies can maintain. So even though our species can be different, we will have similar functionalities out of our microbiome. 90% of the bacterial species in the gut uh, belong to these phyla, bacteroides, and firmecutes. That's not so important. These are technical things that, that really aren't that critical. Um, and then, you know, both proteobacter and uh, bacteroides are gram-negative bacteria. Again, not that important. At the end of the day, the important thing is we've got a lot of different microbes. They do a lot of different things for us. And then here are some other facts about it. Um, archaea, things like methanobacter, they exist in our systems. So we have um, organisms that produce gas, they produce methane, they produce all kinds of um, output from us, some of which we can utilize for metabolism, some we can't, some will show up as flatulence, 
Uh, some will create other conditions within our system itself. We've also got lots of fungal species in our system, Saccharomyces, Candida, um, Cladosporium. We've got a number of different types of organisms in the system and individuals that tend to shift their diets, for example, a carbohydrate-rich diet um, will tend to have different types of microbes within their microbiome or will at least favor different types of microbes within the microbiome. And the environment um, has a huge impact on your microbiome, right? What the environment around you looks like, what are the chemicals in the environment around you, what are the food sources, what are the microbes in the environment around you, all of those things can have a, um, a degree of impact on your actual microbiome itself. And when you look at uh, analysis of large, large samples of, of microbiome, when you look at gene functionality in the human microbiota, you see across lots and lots of groups of people, very similar gene functionality within their microbiome. So even though we might have different species distributions, we tend to have lots of functional redundancies to maintain critical genetic capabilities within humans, right? Again, that's really, really important because the genetic capability is what allows us to be who we are and do what we do. The variety of functional genes within the microbiome dictates our form and function. So if we're starting to mess with the genes that are found within our microbiome, we are tapping into an area that we really don't quite understand and the impact can be really quite dramatic and catastrophic. So it's um, also important to know that microbes are everywhere in your system, right? There is almost no part of your body that has no microbes. If you look here, that it's really quite interesting. The oral cavity accounts for about 26% of the microbes compared that to the gut, which is about 29%. Um, the, the skin, about 21%. So you've got a large concentration of bacteria in most of your body uh, and microbes, not just bacteria in most of your body. And again, they, they create function wherever they are. And the microbes in different parts of the body are vary from, from uh, region to region. And it's the special features of that region that select for those particular microbes. Just a couple of examples here. When you have extremely low pH, that means very acidic environment, um, you, this low pH becomes very selective for the types of microbes that can live in the stomach. So you'll look that the stomach is very different than the small intestine in terms of its microbial distribution, right? That's an environmental factor in the stomach that adds as a pressure and a selection force for the types of microbes that can exist there. And you see that all throughout the body as well, right? In the mouth, in the ear canal, in the vagina, um, in the skin and the penis and the large intestine, everything has its own a unique selection pressure. And that selection pressure selects for particular microbes that can inhabit that area. And that's part of the natural evolution of unique ecosystems in each section of our body. And those unique ecosystems denote the functionality of that part of the body, right? So we need these natural selective pressures to function properly in order for us to be able to create the right type of ecosystems and then the right type of genetic pool among that microbial ecosystem in that part of the body so that it can denote function. So quick conclusion here, the human microbiome co-evolved with its host and it plays both a role, uh, both as commensal and a symbiotic role as well. The human microbiome accounts for over 150 times more genetic potential um, than the human host itself. Right, that's the part that's really critical. 
the vast majority of our functional genes in our body come from microbes, right? We don't have a whole lot of genes in our chromosomes. Most of them come from microbes, over 150 times more. So if we are corrupting that genetic pool, it's hard to predict what may happen to our functionality. Disruption of these functional groups within, the, within different parts of the body, uh, different parts of the microbiome, will denote specific metabolic functions and, when, and will create what we call dysbiosis, which is a dysfunction in the population of bacteria. So when you disrupt the selection pressure in any given place, you disrupt what that ecosystem looks like. And we disrupt what that ecosystem looks like, you disrupt the function of that organ itself, right? If you completely change what the stomach environment looks like and you select for wrong, the wrong type of bacteria, you'll change how the stomach actually functions. And that is absolutely true for every other part of the body as well. Selection pressure in different regions of our body create different microecologies. And again, adding in alteration to the gene pool is a significant selection pressure that can alter the normal formation of the ecosystems. Um, as interconnected as our ecology is, disruption to one portion can drive disruption to another portion over time. So all of these ecosystems in different parts of our body count on one another. They require a, um, a really beautiful orchestrate type of function so that all of the different um, components, uh, all of the different ecosystems within your body work with one another in order to perpetuate the health and wellness of the whole. So they have to orchestrate this, this, um, this type of functionality. And if you start disrupting one area of the microbiome in a significant way, it'll have a cascading effect to impact all areas of the microbiome. Uh, and dysbiosis is associated with disease. So as you start disrupting the ecosystems in the body, you can trace back dysbiosis to virtually every chronic illness there is. So um, what we would do it to ourselves if we start creating this uh, systematic dysbiosis within different parts of our system is we would be driving disease in humans. And a disruptive gut microbiota can drive disease uh, states everywhere, distal to the gut in different regions of the body. Bringing about balance to the gut microbiome to begin with is really paramount to health. But again, when we get exposed to genetically modified organisms, to genetically modified um, you know, target genes that enter our system and microbes can pick those up, uh, we will change the functionality of those organs. These are some things that you can do um, that helps with the gut microbiome. That's less important right now. Um, but you know, the main message here is that we function based on critical microbial ecosystems that, that are selected for in a particular way in different parts of the body. If we start disrupting those ecosystems, we will start disrupting how we function as a human. Vast majority of genetic elements come from microbes, not from the human host. And those, gene uh, those genetic elements denote the, the functionality of the human host. So we have to be very careful when we start messing with those genes. Thank you, Kieran. Thank you for giving us an insight into this unseen world and what science and the medical community is very excited about now. Uh, you mentioned over 50,000 research studies in the last five years. So this is a new and burgeoning area. And we're grateful for you to be one of the leaders in the world at understanding and conveying this complexity and intelligence so beautifully. And continuing uh, with is now Michelle Perro. Dr. Michelle Perro is a pediatrician uh, with 
nearly four decades of experience in pediatrics and integrative medicine, treating children and their families. And uh, her career began in pediatric emergency medicine and now includes homeopathy and functional medicine. Um, Michelle was involved with the pediatric emergency. She was the director of a pediatric emergency department in New York City. She worked with UCSF uh, Benioff Oakland Children's Hospital for over a decade and has become aware of the critical problems of genetically engineered foods and their associated, associated pesticides on health in general and specifically towards children and has co-authored a magnificent and groundbreaking book, What's Making Our Children Sick. Michelle is also the executive director and co-founder of geomoscience.org, and you can find her column at the Townsend Letter, Pediatric Pearls. Welcome, Michelle. Jeffrey, a pleasure to be here with you, Protect Nature Now. I've been kind of following you around for a few decades, so this just seems right from all senses, and of course, thanks to the community and our listeners. So I, I will start with sharing my screen. Now, where is it? Uh-oh, couple of slides too quick. Ahead of myself. Okay. So, as Jeffrey mentioned, I've been involved with children's health forever, for decades. And what I want to focus on now is the baby microbiome, what I like to call the baby biota, and what are the links to health? So in our Earth Day conversation, the key concepts we're covering are introduction and nourishment of the baby's microbiome, the health links to early microbiome development, and then I'm going to bring in is what does gene swapping have to do with it, those promiscuous little buggers. We're going to wrap up with that. So you heard Kieran what he said, what does the microbiome do? Quick recap digestion of food into nutritional products, detoxification of foreign substances, those are called xenobiotics. The liver follows up with that. It supports the integrity of the intestinal cell lining. When that's not supported, you can develop things like leaky gut, intestinal permeability. And of course, what's on everyone's mind right now, immune system modulation. As you all know, 70 to 80% of your immune function comes from your gut. So let's start with pregnancy briefly. This is a quick sum. There are changes that happen during pregnancy that really encourage energy storage. In fact, that benefits the fetal growth and lactation. And what affects these states? The microbes. They are important from the beginning, even before pregnancy actually. So during pregnancy, there are particular lactobacilli. You guys know those little bugs. That's what's in yogurt. There are some that really seem to help mom out. How do they help mom? Well, improve glucose metabolism, reduce high blood pressure. You may have heard of preeclampsia. And they offer protection against heavy metals. And in the first pregnancy, we tend to offset a lot of those heavy metals like lead, mercury, cadmium, et cetera, into the newborn, often the first child. Bummer for that first kid, right? So I don't want to get into what we do so much, but maternal diet really matters. It's not the time to be like downing chips. Organic diet, you'll have only heard me say that a million times, fiber, ferments, probiotic supplements that are focused on these 
various lactobacilli strains. Strains do matter, fortifying mom and the fetus. And I would be remiss if I didn't share with you, there is now a GMO probiotic out there, which I am avoiding, and I recommend you do the same. So how does the baby's biota begin? Well, there's some controversy around this, whether the placenta is colonized or whether it's not. I lean toward it is, and that there are microbes that begin to share with the fetus in the placenta. Acquisition through the birth canal. That journey is where the baby acquires the, the robustness, their microbiome from the stewardship of mom. Breastfeeding. Breastfeeding promotes further generation of the microbial existence of the baby, which then will dictate future health. Skin-to-skin -skin transfer. Other family members matter. Dad, siblings, and a lick on the face from the family pooch. So what about C-sections? I know you're going to ask me that, right? One-third of U.S. births are now C-sections, so those babies do not acquire the microbes from passage through the birth canal, but from the surgical suite and they look a lot like the surgeon. Ah, but wait, don't fear. In a couple of months of nursing, that microbiome will transfer. So, breast milk is best for babies. Why is that? Whoa, 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 it's not sterile. It has at least 600 different types of bacteria. It contains up to 200 different types of carbs called oligosaccharides. Some are prebiotics and nourishment, not for the baby, folks, for the baby biota. Super cool. You need Bifidobacterium infantis to create this healthy baby biota, and that Bifido lowers the pH of the poop and lowers the pH of the intestine, and it makes it less hospitable for pathogens to grow. Super smart. Infant formulas, and occasionally we need formula, organic only, they've added probiotics to try to like recreate the nutritional composition of breast milk, but they only add a few. It's not quite the same. So improving this ecosystem helps mom, helps baby. How? In some prebiotics, probiotics, organic, 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 diversified diet, time in nature, and loving relationships. Stop fighting. Now, the microbiome is set about three years old. But there may be a little wiggle room, up to 30% I've read. I think it's about that clinically. It can be manipulated and changed. And we are in symbiogenesis with our microbes. But I would be remiss not telling you there are studies. This is not Dr. Juju Medicine. There's real data that infant gut dysbiosis is a widespread health problem in U.S. newborns. I'll speak another minute about that in a sec. And this intestinal dysbiosis in infants can disrupt immune development. What is this dysbiosis? It is an imbalance of the microbiota. U.S. babies have a low abundance of beneficial bugs, such as this bifidobacterium that I've been speaking about. High levels of pathogenic bugs, which carry something called antibiotic resistance. So if there is an infection, the common antibiotics are resistant. The bugs have created antibiotic resistance. And these issues confer serious long-term health effects. Don't freak out, folks. I'm not going through this list of what's in formula. I just want to point out one little thing, and that's that carrageenan. Like, what the heck is that? Well, let me tell you. It's an emulsifier. Those break down fats. They're in every processed food, organic or not. Microbes do not like emulsifiers. They have an effect 
and those emulsifiers transfer antibiotic resistant genes. And of course, I couldn't help myself, Jeffrey. I had to put in glyphosate. Yes, it's in there. We're not talking about glyphosate today, not right now. Um, also, I really want to share with you something called BioMilk. It's on the. It's being developed right now. It's not a GMO milk, but it's being made from in a lab from a mom's cell called an epithelial cell, and they're trying to replicate mom's breast milk in the lab. Effect on microbes? Unknown. Protect nature now. Protect babies now. This is the next. I think campaign that I'd like to see get started. And so I'd like to wrap up with the promiscuous bugs, gene swapping. What the heck is that? Well, there's something now called the transferome. It's the genetic content of the new recipient. Now I'm gonna explain what that is. Is this an ecologic win or an ecologic disaster? So Bacteria share genes from one part of the body to another. You heard Kieran say, you've got microbiomes in your eye, your skin, your gut, they're everywhere. And they swap through something called lateral or horizontal gene transfer. It's more frequent in humans than what occurs in nature. Now, these bugs, through this swapping, this horizontal gene transfer, can integrate into human cells and they can evade the human immune system or they can trigger an immune response and uh, create potential autoimmune disease. Now, in a recent report, hot off the press, was the first report of this horizontal gene transfer between a plant and an animal. And the genetic materials transferred uh, via phages, or little pieces of DNA, or viruses. And there are also concerns that GMOs and their novel genes that they produce could escape into the environment. And inserted genes in GMO crops, such as soy, can transfer into the DNA of our microbiota. And there's another brand new study which shows that there is frequent swapping in the gut, more so in industrialized area, producing lots of bugs, but a lower diversity of microbiome. So we have a genomic complexity conundrum and so what I want to end by saying, scientists are beginning to realize that we humans are not just the product of our genes. Instead, we are a bacteria-controlled superorganism. You heard holobiome from Kieran. Scientists now realize that bacteria in our, in our microbiome, with their vast quantities of DNA, play a major role in either directly or indirectly in controlling how we develop and function as human beings. We are not just us. We are us plus them, so it matters who we invite to the party. Love your bugs. Thank you, Michelle. I love your final statement, which is love your bugs, because people tend to want to protect what we love. And it is so important that we protect the microbiome. And you have shared that nature has not only organized for this massive intelligence, to occur for our health, but it shifts it all around in the mother, so it's passed on to future generations. So this is one way that our work to protect nature now and protect the global microbiome is protecting future generations in its transmission from mother to offspring and from offspring to offspring. Thank you. I'm going to invite Jim Thomas now to speak, and Jim has been on the forefront of emerging technologies for 
over 25 years and looking at what are the technologies, what are the impacts in the world, and what are the governance issues. Jim is the research director with the ETC group and serving as the UN Convention on Biological Diversity and the body's ad hoc technical expert group on synthetic biology, Jim has convened international civil society collaborations on synthetic biology. I have been at the Convention on Biological Diversity with Jim, and he is the honcho there that tells us what we need to know. And Jim, you've appeared in several documentaries and have written for all sorts of international media, The Guardian, New Internationalist, Huffington Post, Slate, The Ecologists, and you're going to share with us another aspect of GMO 2.0 that we haven't touched on, and that is gene drives. Jim? Thanks very much, Jeffrey, and thanks for this opportunity to, to talk about this. Um, I'm going to try and share my screen and see if this works. Um, uh, give me a moment. I hope this is right. Uh, do people see that? Hopefully. Uh, great. Can, can you see that? Yes. Um, so yeah, so I've, I've been asked um, by the Institute for Responsible Technology to speak a little bit about this specific genetic technology, which is gene drives. Um, as, as Jeffrey said, etc. Group, we're a small research organization. We track emerging technologies and particularly their impacts on, uh, on the most poor and vulnerable people in the world, um, particularly on farmers and peasants and on biodiversity. And gene drives is, is one of those technologies that, that, as we've seen it emerge, has really given us the most cause for concern that this is a very high leverage technology which which could uh, yeah which could have massive long-lasting effects so um, to dive right in people may not have heard of what a gene drive is we sometimes call it a genetic extinction technology this is a way of genetically engineering an organism using CRISPR which I think you've talked a little about here um, such that that organism will always pass on a particular trait and the effect of this, and I'll explain that more carefully in a moment, but the effect of this is this is a way that by, by engineering a specific organism, you will spread that trait, and so you can engineer an entire population. Um, in effect, a gene drive is like a forcing element. You put it into one organism, and then it forces itself through an entire population, whether that's a population of insects, of, um, of animals, um, of, of, of yeast, for example. And, and so it, until it finally takes over the, the full population. To understand this, it's, it's useful just take a second to look at um, how organisms, sexually reproducing organisms, um, pick up traits from their, from, from their, their parents. Um, you know, if you, you have a trait that's carried, a genetic trait that's carried by one parent, there's, there's like a 50% chance that it's going to get passed on to the next generation. So let's say 50% of those who, who uh, are the offspring might get it, and they in turn would pass it on 50% of the time. So that trait can get continued and but maybe lost in, in a population as it spreads over time. And of course, some traits are very have an evolutionary advantage, and they begin to they they begin to spread. With gene drives, the idea is that it always spreads, so that um, when you genetically engineer, when you release this genetically engineered organism, all of its offspring will have the trait that you want, and all of its offspring will have the trait you want, and all of its offspring will have the trait you want. And the effect of that in a full population here, we're looking at flies, 
is that all of those flies will end up with this particular trait. Let me be a bit more specific. Um, so this is, a, this is a technology that really only began to work in 2014 um, out of a, a, um, a, a experiment that was done at um, UC San Diego by Gantz and Beer. And, and they were able to genetically engineer a fly such that um, when, he, when they, it would pass on a trait that it would become a yellow fly, basically. Um, and so they put these gene drive uh, yellow fly, one ye yellow fly, into a, a box of flies, um, left it there for, uh, for something like a week or two to, to mate and, and, and um, interbreed with the flies that were in there. And then, as you see here, when they opened up the box, nothing but pale yellow flies kept emerging. Um, that is to say, they had successfully transformed that entire population within the box into yellow flies because the gene drive had spread through that population. We were stunned, says Beer. Um, it was like the sun rose in the west rather than the east. They called this the mutagenic chain reaction. It's this chain reaction like a nuclear chain reaction that just keeps going. Immediately, this raises some safety questions. Yellow flies may not be a problem, but um, what else is going to spread? As you, as you put a trait in and that trait is going to spread through a population, um, what does that mean in terms of uh, ecological balance and, and ecosystems? Kevin Esfelt, who's quoted here, is one of the leading developers of gene drives, and his, my nightmare is a wave of yellow flies spreading across the country. He felt that that original experiment was not very well contained, and there are many flies in North America. It's important to know that gene drives, um, they, uh, they need to be in sexually reproducing animals, although, in fact, there's now work on gene drives in uh, viruses, so this isn't entirely true. They're good in organisms that reproduce very quickly, like uh, yeast, small mammals, insects. Uh, you can put a gene drive in a human being, but we have a very slow reproductive cycle. It's, it's not a way to change a human population. Um, and you can use it either to drive a trait through a population, to take out a trait from a population, or to try and crash a population. That is to say, if the trait is that all the offspring are males, eventually that will crash a population. These are called daughterless technologies. Um, and there's some suggestion you could do this in a local way, but it's, it's all theoretical and hasn't been proven. Um, the, this technology is being applied in many areas. There are agricultural gene drives. There's the idea of gene drives for health. There's uh, the military is the largest investor, the, particularly the US Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. And this idea that you will use gene drives in conservation. I'm just going to use the next few minutes to give some examples of gene drive projects at the moment. But at the moment, the promoters of gene drives are trying very hard to hide the agricultural and military uses and to talk mostly about health and conservation as, as positive uses. Um, so you'll hear mostly about the idea of putting gene drives in mosquitoes in West Africa, for example, so that you could eradicate mosquitoes that carry malaria. There are very serious um, ecological impacts if you were to do this. Um, but you can see how that's being presented. This is funded mostly by the Gates Foundation, um, how this is being presented as, a, as a, a health benefit. Or the idea of genetically engineering mice, particularly on islands, who, who attack um, bird's eggs, so that you could remove those mice as a biocontrol process. Uh, we did a report a few years ago called Forcing the Farm. This is um, looking at where are gene drives turning up in agriculture in terms of uh, development. Uh, at the moment, there are no gene drives released commercially, and it's in the development phase. And at the moment, there are no gene drives released to the environment. Um, but this is surely coming.
and was surprised to find that not surprised maybe not surprised to find many of the companies we're familiar with are sort of waiting around the edges of this topic but they don't want to be seen associated with it and there are private companies who are just working on gene drives agrogene and symbol are the two that i name here agrogene for example is working with farmers in uh, california to develop a gene drive in flies um that uh, would eradicate drosphilia suzuki this is a, a spotted uh, fruit fly that um, attacks soft fruit and um this is a advert that Agrogene had in the US in USA Today recently, you see they, they, they're promoting this as an approach that would um, be beef friendly, organic, eco sustainable. The idea is that if you can have uh, spreading gene drive flies that kill themselves, you don't have to put pesticides. Um, uh, they're doing trials at the moment in Oregon, Corvallis. Um, the, the USDA is also supporting work for gene drives that uh, uh, use the new for getting rid of the new world screwworm, which affects cattle. Um, and there's a lot of conversation about the idea of what if we can put gene drives into into weeds, so that where weeds have become resistant to Roundup, we could uh, drive Roundup tolerance. So the weeds once again will be able to be destroyed by Roundup. This, of course, is a, a business case that works perfectly for Biomonsanto. And the main patent on RNA-guided gene drives names 167 common herbicides that you could allow weeds to become um, uh, uh, non-tolerant to, to be affected by again. Uh, there's work on putting gene drives in fungus, fungus that affects um, wheat. Um, if you could drive the fungus to, to be able to be deleted. Um, and the notion that if you can use gene drives in animals, um, it's a way of speeding up breeding and directing breeding. And particularly here, there's uh, some work on trying to get what's called genetic gain in livestock, making more muscly and more meaty animals. Um, and it may also be a way of uh, speeding up seed replication. Um, here's a, some work on trying to get gene drives into um, locusts, such that, that locusts uh, w wouldn't, um, uh, wouldn't swarm, right? trying to dis disrupt the swarming behavior of locusts. And there's even some crazy stuff around putting gene drives into bees, such that you could then control them using light beams. This stuff is really just in a patent. We haven't seen the work being done actually in the field, but the idea of of trying to change entire populations of pollinators is extremely worrying. Um, as you may expect, conservationists are very concerned about it. This is a statement that was made um, four or five years ago by 30 leading conservationists. You see Jane Goodall, David Suzuki and others um, saying that the, there should be no place for gene drives in conservation. And that's one of the areas that's most being pushed. There's a real call for a moratorium on gene drives from civil society organizations. and um, particularly a moratorium on any uses in agriculture. 250 different organizations and leading food activists all called for a moratorium on gene drives in agriculture uh, in 2018. Um, this, this, uh, this says here, the United Nation hits the brakes on gene drives. We, many of us work to try and get a moratorium on gene drives at the UN Convention on Biodiversity, we didn't get a moratorium. We did get some, some language, which means that you can't release gene drives without free prior informed consent of those who are affected. And there is a process at the CBD, but it's not, it's not a, it's, it's a, a slow break, not a stop or a turnaround. And that's, that's concerning. There are very strong um, 
uh, interest, particularly in the US, uh, the UK, um, Australia, who are pushing hard for allowing for release of gene drives. Um, I would just leave it there. If you want more information, etc. Group has a website, etcgroup.org. You can get updates and so forth. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Uh, you, like me, spend time scaring people for a living. <laughs> Years ago, I spent uh, a good evening with a friend of mine trying to figure out a different acronym for GMO and got, came up with God Move Over. Here, we're trying to reorganize the nature of nature on a large scale, combining what we've already said, that the most common result of genetic engineering is surprise side effects, and what Michelle said, that we now have gene transfer between plants and animals. Who knows what would happen if these gene drives get deployed? Well, one person that has some idea of some of the mistakes is our next speaker. Dr. Michael Antonio is at, he's at the Department of, of Medical and Molecular Genetics at King's College in London as a reader in molecular genetics and head of the Gene Expression and Ther Therapy Group with 35 years of experience in genetic engineering technologies, including gene editing. Uh, so Michael has published 130 peer-reviewed studies. He holds inventor status on gene expression, biotechnology patents, and he also studies the safety or lack of it of genetically engineered organisms and their associated pesticides. For example, his group discovered and verified that GM corn and non-GM corn are not equivalent. He has identified that Roundup causes liver and kidney toxicity, as well as disturbance in the gut microbiome. Michael will be speaking on gene editing and the mismatch between the gene editing, what can go wrong, and government regulation. Michael? Thank you very much, Jeffrey. Can everybody hear me all right? Yes. Thank you very much. So again, I'd like to extend my thanks to you, Jeffrey, and, and your organization for the invitation to be part of this exciting and very important meeting. And it's an honor for me to be sharing the platform this evening with so many other eminent speakers. So gene editing, yeah, this is a, a buzzword in society today. Hardly a day or a week goes by, really, when you don't read something in the media about he, gene editing is going to solve this or other problem in either a medical sphere, which is my own area of research, or more often in an agricultural, uh, environmental, uh, especially agricultural food context. But are, the, but are these uh, promises, uh, is the science underpinning gene editing? Does it actually support all these promises? And uh, and what is actually going on in terms of regulation of this new technology? We have to remember, this is a technology that is barely 10 years old. And yet, as I will go on to describe, we have a, an incredible lobby that's trying to get gene editing, at least certain outcomes of gene editing, completely deregulated, leaving it to be a free-for-all for anyone to do what they want and market their products without safety testing and without labeling. Now, why does that worry me? Well, firstly, what we, the first thing we need to realize is that gene editing is first and foremost, undisputably, even those that are in favor, advocates of gene editing in an agricultural context, even they don't dispute the fact that gene editing is a completely artificial laboratory-based genetic modification procedure. So, 
some people who call it a new plant, new plant breeding technique have clearly got it wrong. There's, there's clearly, when you generate a, ge a gene edited crop or animal, uh, there's no breeding involved at all. It's all laboratory artificial manipulation and which therefore by definition, <clears throat> because gene editing is a, a genetic modification procedure, by definition, it gives rise to GMOs. And so therefore, not surprisingly, in 2018, the European Court of Justice was true to this science and passed uh, a ruling that said that yes, the products of gene editing are GMOs, and therefore they must, their, their regulation comes under the GMO regulation. They must undergo, at least as far as Europe was concerned, they have to go the GMO safety, risk assessment, safety evaluation, and they must be labeled after they enter the marketplace. This, uh, despite this scientific fact that nobody can dispute, there is actually an international lobby, an incredible strong lobby everywhere in the world, not just by industry, but also their academic, academic allies to uh, deregulate or to redefine what a GMO is. That would in the process exclude certain types of gene edited produced organisms. And in so doing, they would fall out of the GMO regulation and these products would, there would be no need, no obligation on behalf of the developer to undergo any safety assessments, risk assessments, and their products would not be labeled post-marketing, which means that consumers will be de denied their democratic right to choose what they buy to eat. Now, what the, at the basis of this um, uh, call for deregulation, of uh, gene editing is this assertion that the, what we should do is ignore the process by which we produce a GMO and just look at the end product, the end trait. And if you, and if you convince yourself that this trait that the, that the gene editing has produced is something that could have happened naturally. In other words, they're claiming that gene editing mimics what happens in nature. And if you convince yourself of that, that what you've produced could have, could have occurred naturally, then uh, why, why bother? You know, in other words, they're saying, why should you regulate it? Because it's just mimicking what nature does. Of course, what these, these, what these lobbyists are doing is not, they're not actually listening to themselves. These scientists that are proposing this, they're not actually listening to themselves. By saying ignore the, by, by saying ignore the process of gene editing, what they're actually saying, ignore the scientific method. Scientific method, the methods are used to produce an end result is the very foundation of science. And they're saying in this context, ignore that and just focus on the end product. This goes against every scientific principle. It's like me trying to publish a paper, publish some results and not submit the methods by which I obtained those results. I would be a laughing stock. That's how ridiculous conceptually this whole idea is. Because certainly the process Sorry, I was, I was muted by somebody there. 
Sorry, I'm back on. I'm back now. Um, so if, by the way, you know, the, 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 the claim of that, what gene editing does, mimics what, hap what could be produced through natural breeding, is just a hypothesis. There's no evidence at all that that, can, that, that actually uh, uh, happens. But, but also, when we look at procedure, of course, how you, do, how you produce a new trait through natural breeding and how you produce a new trait through gene editing procedurally, are, they bear no resemblance to each other. Absolutely, completely different. Now, why is it important that we cannot ignore procedure? The reason why we cannot ignore procedure is because procedure informs us where things, where things can go wrong as well as where things can go as we intend them to. In other words here, where unintended DNA damage, mutations can happen, and what those consequences might be to the organism in terms of its health and safety risks and health and safety risks and environmental impact. And sure enough, when you compare the procedure of natural breeding with gene editing, the kinds of unintended, spectrum of unintended outcomes that can happen are radically different. And we now know through extensive studies in not only human animal systems, but also in plant systems, that gene editing, which is claimed to be three things, precise, predictable, and therefore completely safe, science simply does not support these, these claims. Because we now know that gene editing can produce unintended large-scale mutations at not only in multiple regions around the genome, around the DNA of the organism, but even at the intended gene editing site. And these mutations can range from large deletions, large rearrangements, and large insertions of DNA around the genome that could alter the, alter the pattern of gene function of many, many genes. Now, why is that a worry? If you alter the patterns of many gene families, multiple genes within the organism, you will change its biochemistry in a totally unpredictable way. Why is that? It's because no gene works in isolation. Genes work as networks. And if you change just one gene, you'll have a ripple effect through the network of gene functions that will then alter the biochemistry because the pattern of gene functions of an organism that takes its biochemistry and its composition and its function. If you change multiple gene functions as gene editing can, can do and has been observed to do, you can radically alter the biochemistry of a, of a, of a plant, of a food plant, of a crop. It may look right. It may look like what you wanted. You know, the maize may look like a, a corn, a corn plant or a soybean may still look like a soybean and a, and a corn plant and propagate. But on its level of its biochemical function, it could be radically different. And within that altered biochemistry, we run the risk of producing novel toxins, novel allergens, or increasing the levels of pre-existing allergens and toxins. These possibilities are real. They're not in the realms of fantasy. 
because we know that gene editing can produce these kinds of these kinds of damage, which the industry, which is produce, producing GM animals and, and especially crops, are not doing their analysis properly to identify all these unintended mutations. So therefore, this is this is uh, this is the from a Based on this, it's clear that the evidence, the scientific evidence that underpins gene editing does not support the claims of precision, predictability, and automatic safety. And this is why the lobby to deregulate gene editing is so worrying. If the lobbyists get their way, as they in effect have had in the United States already, that redefines what GMOs are and therefore excludes certain outcomes that can be achieved through gene editing, it means the market could be flooded with, with food products, gene edited food products that have undergone no health risk evaluation, no environmental risk evaluation, and they will not be labeled post-marketing and therefore people will not know what they're eating. Even organic farmers may be buying in seeds that they will not know have been gene edited and will grow them and sell the product as an organic product when actually what they're doing is growing and selling a GMO. And so that, that's the situation. And um, I will leave it there. And we can pick up on these points, um, any of these points later. Thank you, Michael. Um, you made it absolutely clear that the gene editing poster child of the biotech industry has the ability to completely disrupt, delete, and scramble the genome in unusual and unpredictable ways. That there is an effort now to have governments everywhere turn a blind eye, and you've been involved in the UK debate that's going on right now in this area. There's a debate in Canada right now in this area where the biotech industry advocates are trying to it, it basically tell the government, squirrel, look the other way, and will let us just introduce genetic engineering through gene editing. Now, we've also seen that the microbiome is critical, has evolved with humans, and the ecosystem for billions of years, and that any slight disruption can cause disease uh, damage or even ecosystem collapse, and that microbes can swap genetic elements, and that we rely on the microbiome for its genetic elements to drive the majority of the day-to-day -day operations in the human body. So what could go wrong? That's a big question. What can go wrong? And I say, so many things can go wrong. Given the state of the science, we feel fully justified in calling for no release of genetically engineered microbes anywhere in the world. Anytime they're developed or used, we want to see a lockdown at a very high level. We want to see an assignment of strict liability to the supply chain and organizers that created that so that they then realize what could go wrong could affect them and not just the rest of the planet. And while we're at it, let's learn the lessons of the pandemic and let's not genetically enhance potentially pandemic pathogens 
because we have not yet mastered containment. These are the things that we are calling for from Protect Nature Now, and it's not just government laws, because we know that governments can change their stories. I was flown to Poland once, gave a press conference with the Minister of Environment, praising the government's non-GMO stance. A week later, literally, a new government took over that was pro-GMO. So we cannot rely on laws to be the only stable solution. We need to bring this message into popular culture, into schools, into movies, documentaries, TV shows, books, articles. We want the human civilization to realize we've come to the inevitable time where we can redirect the streams of evolution easily for all time and that we now must safeguard all living beings and all future generations, but, all, but most urgently and most particularly the microbiome level because it can spread with unpredictable consequences very quickly. We didn't need a pandemic to know that microbes can go around the world, but now we are highly sensitized to that. So I invite those listening to participate in Protect Nature Now to go to protectnaturenow.com to view the film, Don't Let the Gene Out of the Bottle, and share it everywhere. The primary call to action is to go to the advocacy platform where you can share information with a single click or a slight customization to your elected officials to media, to your social media network. And also we ask for donations, ideally on a monthly basis, even $5, so that we know the money is coming in and we can build a global movement. This must be a global movement because as I will read a question, by the way, you can ask your questions now on the chat and in the comments section of anywhere you're watching this in Facebook and YouTube, on Zoom. There was a question. Um, I will read it. Sarah, don't we have to uh, regulate globally to make a difference? How can that happen? Exactly. Protect Nature Now would be inappropriate to apply just to the United States government. Even a single country, a single bad actor could pump out hundreds of thousands or millions of of microbes in this generation. We are excited to have Jim Thomas as one of our allies who's working at the Convention on Biological Diversity and other international treaties. We need it at that level. We need it at the national level. We need it at the local level. So we invite organizations and leaders from around the world to join us at Protect Nature Now. Let us know that you're interested. If your organization would like to become an ally, let us know. We have 40 allies already lined up and many more coming. So yes, we want to clone ourselves around the world so that there's organizations and activities like this. And we want the world to know about this risk as much as they know about global warming so that people realize that just as you wouldn't give an atom bomb to a child and said, oh, don't hit the yellow button, we wouldn't give the gene editing technology to anyone and say, oh, don't release something that might disturb all living beings and all future generations. I'd like to now turn to some of the questions that you're asking and uh, we haven't, we're not able to direct a question to Jim Thomas at the moment because he had another event right now. 
So Jeremiah asks, how can we make an impact to stop all of this? That is the purpose of Protect Nature Now, Jeremiah. Please subscribe at Protect Nature Now. Go to the advocacy platform. If you can make a donation on a monthly basis and let others know. We need to make this a global movement. Now, one thing that works to our advantage is that all the different groups in the world will often rely on the microbiome for their success. Regenerative agriculture needs the microbiome to do the heavy lifting. Functional medicine and medicine in general needs the microbiome. The climate change people, if they extend their lands, it's actually about planetary survival. So this is in their area. Animal rights, birders, gardeners. So we want all these different groups to take the Protect Nature Now information as planks on their platform. Okay, here's a question from Mike, is there a national security risk with this technology and is the government looking into it? Yes, there is. The national security uh, agencies in the United States are very concerned about gene editing. And they say that, as we know, as Michael pointed out, that the technology has outpaced regulation. So it's an interesting thing that we have security agencies around the world on our side. Um, here's a question that I don't know the answer to, and I don't know if, if our panelists do. It's from Moms Across America. Is making gene drives as cheap as CRISPR? Michael, do you know the answer to that? In many cases, gene editing tools like CRISPR are used in the process of inserting a gene drive or a part of a gene drive. Um, actually so it's one of the applications the reason why it's gene drives have come to the fore in recent years it's been since the invention of CRISPR mediated gene editing that's that's really what's behind it so it's one application of CRISPR mediated gene editing which is terrifying if the Chris if the gene drive technology was available to anyone with a do-it-yourself Amazon kit there was a question, uh, how come the government has not um, uh, regulated the do-it-yourself? I see, I don't see who asked the question, but how come the government hasn't regulated the do-it-yourself gene drive kit? Michael, um, can you tell us what is the government attitude that allows them to accept gene editing as safe and natural? What talking points are they believing and telling the world? Unfortunately, um, the way I, I, I see it because is that the reason why governments uh, have been um, so influenced is it's from the incredibly powerful industry, uh, uh, the lobby from industry and its, and its allies in academia and, and research institutes. And it's really, um, you know, all the science that I mentioned about gene editing this evening, it, you know, you can't dispute it. The evidence is there, it's published. Uh, and yet it is clearly being swept aside and ignored. Um, what, so what, what could be the reasons? What you're asking for really, Jeffrey, is what, what, what is the reason behind this rush to use a technology that's only 10 years old? And doesn't have a history, let alone a history of safe use. That's another major failing, right? You know, whereas natural breeding has been around for millennia, and we know what we're doing, 
a great history of safe use, which in editing, we, we barely out, we barely got going, and yet it what every everyone's well, so many are trying to get it deregulated. What why is this? For me, you have to look uh, really is to follow the money and you get your answer. Because the point about gene edited products is that they're patentable, just like old style transgenic GMOs. Gene editing GMOs are also patentable. And therefore, the developer of such a product has full control over the marketing of this product. He can control its entry and use within the food supply the, or the environment, because there's many food and non-food applications of this technology. And so the potential commercial return, the financial return from this is absolutely enormous. And I think this is why governments have bought into it as well. They, they see there's some potential to control so many of the basic items in our lives and therefore have financial returns on an unprecedented scale. And, and I think that's why so, so many governments are erring on the side of, the, of those that want deregulation rather than being true to the science. Because anyone who uh, really uh, goes, is in favor of deregulation is just going completely against the, the, the science. So, and if you, and this is, this is really the irony that will happen here if the deregulators get their way. You could change the law and redefine what a GMO is, and now a gene-edited GMO is no longer a GMO in the eyes of the law. And therefore, somebody could market a gene-editing product as a non-GMO. So legally, you would be, you know, you'd be one bit breaking the law, and you could label your gene-edited product as non-GMO. So legally, you'd be right, but you'd be completely and utterly dishonest uh, from a scientific and, and uh, perspective, from actually a true, from a more true objective perspective, be completely and utterly dishonest. And that is the, the, the kind of conundrum and, and, uh, that we're facing at the moment, that even honest people who want to uh, sell n natural uh, uh, products, that aren't genetically engineered, they could uh, unknowingly be growing and selling using gene-edited products, which are GMOs, but not know that that is the case. And, and, they, they, uh, and that would be tr tragic for, for them and, of course, for those that seek out their products. Thank you, Michael. Monica asks, do you need organization? Do you need to be an organization to be involved? Absolutely not. Please go to protectnaturenow.com, participate in the advocacy and sign our petition, etc. And we're going to keep you informed of materials. We have additional opportunities to hear from the panelists here. We have a library of research and resources um, where I've interviewed uh, each of the guests here and others. And we will be providing that both on our website and also through posts and emails. I would like to ask a question of Kieran. Now, I want to make sure that people realize that we don't want to demonize science or scientists. I'm saying that to scientists in the platform. Um, there are well-meaning scientists who see this technology as having an ability to do something great. So I asked you this question, and I'd love for you to elaborate on this. Imagine someone wants to put some pre probiotic in the soil 
to create some regenerative aspect because they see that that's important and it feels like the wave of regenerative regeneration, but it's a genetically engineered one and it's well-intentioned. How could that end up causing harm to a human being? Could you think of a scenario? Sure, yeah. You know, if, if the microbe is in the soil and it's and it's part of our food system, meaning it's, it's uh, part of growing the food that we eat, uh, inevitably, it ends up in a water system and and in the food supply chain in itself, right? So, uh, we know that those microbes will then make their way into our digestive tract. Um, and if those microbes have unique metabolic functions, um, including the ability to survive through the gastric system, for example, that could change the metabolic process by which we digest food. Um, in our system. So, um, you know, let's take a microbe that, let's say we want the microbe to enhance a metabolic process at the root level, but that is not something that we want to happen in the digestive tract. Um, that organism can end up in the digestive tract, thereby um, enhancing that particular me metabolic profile in the gut, which for us as humans, because we're not plants, will have unintended consequences. You know, it would disrupt our ability to digest certain categories of foods. Um, and there's the, the check system and understanding how to predict the, uh, the potential impact of that is, is really um, difficult, right? That, that's something that you really can't know until uh, it's too late that it has some catastrophic effect down the road. So the good news is there's lots of natural microbes that can enhance plant growth and so on. And we just don't have to, you know, we have to make an effort to not work with dead soil all the time. And, and there's a lots of wonderful microbes that we've co-evolved with over millions of years that are perfectly fine uh, being consumed and then also help the plants. So going in and doing it from a genetic perspective, like Michael said, is really a big economic driver, right? You want to patent it, you want to you want to hold the um, uh, hold the market for that, and and it becomes a financial drive, not so much a um, a drive to improve humanity, improve agriculture, and so on. Thank you, Kieran, and Michelle. I have a question for you. You actually do the studies of your patient's microbiota, and you can see where it has gone from industrial food, et cetera, and how it correlates with their conditions and how changes in the microbiota over time because of your interventions can change the health. So where are we in this population? Where are the children in terms of the microbiota? And how important from your hands-on experience is the health of the microbiome to the health of the children and their future? Yes, Jeffrey, this is an important question. So you can do an analysis of the microbiome. You could look at the fats in there, the proteins. You could look at inflammatory markers. You could look at which organisms are there by something called PCR testing. You could look if there are beneficial bacteria numbers and pathogens. This has not made it over into mainstream medicine. It's still in the domain of what we call integrative medicine or functional medicine. And we're trying to trans transition that so that practitioners start to test the poop. Where kids are, let me address kids, 
um, kids poop because that's what pediatricians do. We do, we do poopy diapers. And what we have found is, and I have found this personally because I like to test, is that kids have very low numbers of microbial diversity. They may have high numbers of bugs, but their microbial diversity has been literally decimated. What we also found is there is a preponderance of certain organisms that can lead to certain diseases. We now know that certain microbial populations are found with certain diseases. Let me give you an example clinically. So kids, for example, with autistic spectrum disorder, very common now, one in 23 boys, one in 58 kids is now on the spectrum, very high. 90% of them have gut dysfunction. When you actually look at their poop, they have a preponderance of clostridia. Not all clostridia, it's a type of microbe or bad bugs. Too many of them can lead to disorders. So we're now seeing links with disorders such as diabetes, autoimmune conditions such as rheumatoid arthritis and certain types of organisms like proteus, we're seeing these patterns now of even things like asthma and eczema and more common conditions that um, listeners are familiar with. And by simple change in diet, you can see a microbial shift in a day or two. It's actually quite shocking. You don't need six months. So as people change their diets from less processed food, which literally destroys the microbiome, by the way, because of all the stuff in my in processed foods, you can begin to shift by what you eat. You are what you eat. You are what you ate. So we see these shifts. So the first step in medical management is changing the diet. Now, the things that are kind of in my wheelhouse, because I'm part of this group, is that, gee, what happens when we eat those GMOs? And those genetically modified organisms start swapping with the microbes in our gut. They have bacteria, little swaps. There are swap meats going on. They're swapping easily. Bacteria swap easily, by the way. It's not through phages, through viruses. We also have a microvirome, a micro. Um, we have a microbiome of viruses, fungi, archaea, protozoa. Those can all be normal. They're swapping out their genetic material. And then we have GMO segments becoming incorporated in part of our microbiota. Health impacts? Mm, not clear. Do we have a, a kind of epidemic of disease among children? Absolutely. And I won't go into all the stats. I don't want people to get too disillusioned by Dr. Doom and Gloom, but it's out there. So the first step is avoid GMOs. And I just want to follow up one comment on the heels of what Michael and Kieran were saying before, the patent parade. Who's making money? I like to pick on the Impossible Burger, my favorite pick on burger. Um, Michael and Claire Robinson did a great article for GMO Science on this. We're still getting tons of hits. I can't say it enough, that Impossible Burger, now in Burger King, is a GMO burger with 44 novel proteins in that darn thing. And what I last read, and this might be a few months ago, is that Impossible Foods, and you can follow the money, see who makes it, um, had like 100 patents in the pipe. So there is this patent parade of money that's following and we're eating things that we don't know the health outcome. I know that that was long-winded. I apologize. But did I answer the question, Jeffrey? You did indeed. And I want to say we're going to wrap up now. Uh, if you have additional questions, you're welcome to share and then we will uh, please subscribe to protectnaturenow.com and we will attempt to answer all of the questions that we can. Uh, and we consult with these and other experts that you see before you. Um, we have seen that in spite of massive government support and biotechnology money, that over the last 25 years, the world has become educated about the health dangers of GMOs, the 
Uh, about 50% of the, of the world realizes that GMO foods are not safe, and that is changing and protecting our food supply. Now we, so we know that our movement is powerful. I've asked eight, organ, eight um, audiences at the beginning of my lectures, what do you think is more dangerous for the planet, GMOs or climate change? And I was surprised that it was consistent in every single talk. There was an average acknowledgement that GMOs were more dangerous. And some of these were at climate change conferences. So it's not an unusual concept that GMOs carry threats. But now we are seeing this moment in this urgent time period that the threats can become reality and we need to act. So we can't wait 25 years to build a movement. We need to do it right away. So that is why the first word in today's panel was urgent. And so I invite you all to urgently go to protect nature now. But one other thing, we can choose to respond to this with anger or fear or sadness, but I'm going to recommend that we take this as an honor to protect nature now. You see, we have come to that time where humanity can redirect the streams of evolution. So we now can work as a global team to increase the vision of humanity so we protect and steward nature and realize with the capacity to do such harm, we have a new responsibility. That new responsibility fosters a new vision, fosters a new connection, which comes back to your point, Michelle, we need to love our microbiome and we need to protect what we love. So part of our work, we're going to be asking Michelle and Kieran to give us the information about the microbiome, which is simply awe-inspiring. How the baby communicates with the mother through the microbiome of the saliva and conveys its needs so that it changes the structure of the milk. This kind of intelligence we can't design and we're just learning about. So please join us in Protect Nature now. Adopt the microbes as your friends. Adopt the microbes as their protector. And please share this information with everyone you know. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, Michael, Kieran, Michelle, and Jim. And thank you for all the platforms. If you didn't come in the beginning, we will send you all a link to the entire proceedings. And safe eating. Thank you for listening to Live Healthy, Be Well. Please subscribe to the podcast using whatever app you listen to podcasts with, or go to livehealthybewell.com to subscribe. This podcast will inform you about health dangers, corporate and government corruption, and ways we can protect ourselves, our families, and our planet. I interview scientists, experts, authors, whistleblowers, and many people who have not shared their information with the world until now. Please share the podcast with your friends. It will enlighten and may even save lives. Safe eating.